The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu.
one of their own number, like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall make known to them all that I command him. And the man who refuses to listen to the word, he shall speak in my name, of that man I myself will require it. If you really spoke in the name of the prophets, you would have told the people that I am the suffering servant of Jehovah, of whom Isaiah spoke so poignantly, saying, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned each one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, the results of the suffering of his life he shall see, he shall be satisfied. By knowledge of him shall my righteous servant make many righteous, for he shall bear their guilt. If you really spoke in the name of Moses and the prophets, then you would have told the people that I am the king of whom Isaiah speaks, saying, For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There shall be no end to the increase of his government or to the peace upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, in that it is firmly established and supported in justice and righteousness from now on and forever. In short, if you really spoke of, spoke of Moses and the prophets, you would have told the people that I am the promised Messiah, the true prophet, the true high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, and the great king who should come. You would have told the people that I am the promised seed of Abraham, and that therefore through me all the nations of the world shall be blessed. As it is, you speak of your father, the devil. Filled with his spirit, you seek now to kill me. You deflect the eyes of the people from me. But how fantastically futile and self-frustrating your hatred of me will prove itself to be. You will kill me, no doubt. Then you will think that you are victorious over me. But in your supposed victory, you will serve God unwittingly, and you will actually be destroying Satan's kingdom and establishing mine. Through my defeat at your hands, I attain my victory over you and over your king. Repent, therefore, and be saved, ere it be too late. Give up your futile striving against me, lest the wrath of the angel of the covenant, of which Moses and the prophets speak, abide upon you. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Truly I assure you that he who listens to my message and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He comes not under judgment, but has passed from death to life. When Jesus had thus been, been nailed to the cross by the Pharisees, they ridiculed him. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. This was the end of the matter, or so they thought. However, soon they found themselves desperately forbidding Peter and the other apostles to speak any more in this name. And soon there were others besides the apostles that spoke forth the message of the resurrection of Jesus. Did you hear what they say happened at Pentecost? The Bible says there was a great concourse there. They say that the people were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in foreign languages, just as the Spirit granted them expression. Not only those unlettered peasants of Galilee that always used to follow him wherever he went, but others also now accuse us to the effect that we have falsified the message of Moses and the prophets. Did you hear that fellow, about that fellow Stephen? Listen to what he said at the end of the long harangue. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart and ear, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit. 
you the same as your fathers. And did you hear what the rabble said about this man Stephen when he, we stoned him to death? They said that he was full of the Holy Spirit and that he saw the Son of Man standing at the right, at God's right hand. But then did you also hear about that young man Saul of Tarsus? We can expect great things for our cause from him. Now this Saul of Tarsus is only a young man, you see, but he is one of us in heart and soul. When we stoned Stephen, he took care of our extra clothes. How he would have liked himself to throw stones on that fellow Stephen. He was all for destroying him. It mattered not how. He hated everything and everybody that had any connection with this name, Jesus. But in all their hatred, the Jewish council was again defeated in their every victory, as they thought. On their authority, Saul went to Damascus to have both men and women hailed into the court for believing in Jesus and his resurrection. But as he traveled and approached Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly beamed all around him, and he fell to the earth and heard a voice that spoke to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, Who art thou, Lord? And he answered, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Trembling and astonished, Paul asked, Lord, what wouldst thou have me to do? Who are you, Lord? I thought you were an imposter. I thought that your blind followers had just imagined in their misguided zeal the story of the resurrection as a myth by which to deceive the people. But now I know that you are the victor, and that I and the other Pharisees are the vanquished. It was thus that Paul the Pharisee, Saul the Pharisee, persecuting all those who were of that way, that is, all those who believed in Jesus and his resurrection, was changed into Paul the Apostle. Henceforth he was to be the Lord's choice instrument, as Jesus said, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the peoples of Israel. When Paul at a later date did carry the name of Jesus to his people, and as he did so told them about his conversion on the way to Damascus, the people shouted, Away from the earth with such a fellow, for he is not fit to live. Such was the treatment Paul received at the hands of his own people when he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. How earnestly he desired that his people, his nation, and its leaders might together worship instead of persecute Jesus. But for his love they returned persecution. However, despite the plottings of the Jews against him, Paul continued to preach and to bear testimony to both Jews and Greeks that they should repent before God and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul gradually turned away from the Jews toward the Gentiles, it seemed for a moment as though he would have a better reception for his message. At Lystra, Paul healed a man, lame, and lame man in the name of Jesus. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, The gods have come down to us in human form. However, when Paul and his colleague Barnabas told them to worship the living God who made heaven, earth, and sea, and everything else that they contained, not man, certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium influenced the Gentiles not to listen to this man Paul. Listening to these Jews, the crowds turned about and stoned Paul to death, or so they thought. But surely Paul would receive better treatment from the Greek philosophers, would he not? Were they not also seeking to lead the people away from this foolish worship of many gods? Were they not opposing polytheism in the interest of monotheism? Were not the Greek philosophers at least walking in the direction of monotheism? 
Did not the pre-Socratics with one voice proclaim that reality is one? They said all is water, and examine an examiner that all is indefinite, and examines that all is air, Heraclitus that all is flux, Parmenides that all is static. Never mind the differences between them, the main point is that all of them said that all is at bottom one. Is not this true progress on the way to the Christian position that Paul was preaching that there is one God? Still further, did not Plato and Aristotle urge their followers to interpret the lower aspects of life in terms of the higher aspects? Did not they speculate, postulate a teleology, a conception of universal purpose in the universe which might repair its adherence toward giving Paul a sympathetic hearing? Did not some of the early church fathers, notably Justin Martyr and Clement of Alexandria, supplement Greek teleology with a Christian teleology, the Greek paideia or culture with a Christian paideia or culture in order to provide the followers of Jesus with what they call a balanced outlook of life? Most important of all, did not the greatest philosopher theologians of the early century, St. Augustine, use the Platonic principle of unity in order by means of it to refute the skeptics and the dualists of the, Man the Manichees. Said Augustine, if it is true that God does not exist, it is still true that it is God that does not exist, and therefore God does exist. Did not this satisfy his interlocutor, reason? Yes, indeed, this argument of Augustine's did satisfy reason, namely the kind of reason which Parmenides had employed when he said it is the same to know and to be. However, Paul did not actually go down this road. He might well have done so had not Jesus Christ appeared to him on the way to Damascus. The Pharisees had gone out among the Gentiles to make proselytes among them, so that they might be one with the covenant people of God. But these covenant-keeping people had become covenant-breaking people. Suppose then that Paul had gone out as a missionary for the Pharisees. What message would he then have brought to the Gentiles? Suppose he had spoken to the Gentiles and especially to the Greek philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, about the message of Moses and the prophets. Would he have told these Gentiles that they must forsake the worship of their one God and instead of instead worship the one God of which Moses had spoken when he said, Behold, the Lord thy God is one Lord? He would have done nothing of the sort. The one God of the Pharisees was, to all intents and purposes, identical with the one God of the Greeks. Neither the one God of the Pharisees nor the one God of the Greeks could allow room for Jesus as the Son of God and for the Holy Spirit as the third person of the Trinity, the triune God of Scripture, and the one God of the Pharisees or the Greeks are mutually exclusive one of another. The one God of Moses was known only through the angel of the covenant, and this angel of the covenant Paul now knew was Jesus Christ who had appeared to him and had saved him from his sin. Paul now knew that as the Pharisee he had worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. As a Pharisee he had perverted the revelation about God the Creator and Redeemer of men. It was on the way to Damascus that he had learned to realize that no one comes to the Father, that no one comes to God, unless he comes through the Son of God and through his death and resurrection from the dead. Now he knew that no one knows the Father or the Son except through the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit of Christ, should give him life from above. 
as a Pharisee, Paul had been a Unitarian. Now he became a Trinitarian. Now Paul takes makes meditation on his vi- on the vision of the future. Thinking over the significance of his vision, Paul realized that if he were to be an apostle to the Gentiles, that then he must come to them with a message of life through the risen Lord who had brought life and immortality to life for sinful men by his death on the cross. After his conversion, Paul not only realized that the Pharisees had held under, that is, repressed, the grace of God operating through Moses and the prophets as pointing to Jesus as the promised Messiah. He also realized that the Gentiles, and notably the Greek philosophers, had also held under and repressed the revelation of their God, Creator, Redeemer, as he had spoken to them through their own consciousness and through the facts of the world about them. The Pharisees and the Greeks were covenant breakers, and such as such they opposed Jesus and grieved the Spirit of God. A totally new and different view of all things in heaven and on earth opened up to Paul as he meditated in quietness upon the glorified Lord. This glorified Lord was the one who had come from glory, had humbled himself even to the death of the cross, and had then risen from the dead and ascended into glory, whence he had spoken to Stephen and to himself. Paul now knew that all men since their fall in Adam, all men without exception, are under the wrath of God, their Creator, Redeemer, for their suppression of the revelation of God to them. There is none righteous, not even one, says Paul. No one is understanding, no one is a searcher after God. All have strayed, they all together become worthless. There is none doing right, not even one. Paul now knew that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, were dead in trespasses and in sins, and are haters of God. But the risen Lord had, in his great condescending mercy, reached down to him and to many with him and made them lovers instead of haters of God. The same Lord would, by the light and by the power of the Holy Spirit, call others to him and bring them out of slavery of sin and the dread of death unto life and to a fearless facing of the future. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It was with this message of life that Paul went to the Gentiles who were without hope and without God in this world. He went to the Greeks, but he went to the Greeks as though they were the representatives of all the mass of mankind. So far as his own people follow the teachings and life of the Pharisees, they too were in the same class with all other men. They were, in fact, more guilty than our other men. Their special privileges only counted against them unless they would heed the call to repentance that Jesus had given them in his day and that he, Paul, was now bringing to them anew. All men, both Jew and Gentile, are worshippers of the creature rather than of the Creator. Paul's special responsibility was to the Gentiles, but he was anxious that they, in turning to the faith, might bring his own people to emulation of them. The vision of one mass of mankind, all of them under the wrath of God, because though they knew God, they had not kept him in remembrance. This is what Paul saw after he had seen the risen Lord. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. 
but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Seeing all men in their horrible pollution and guilt, Paul only added that he himself was once the chief of sinners. He was no better than they, but that he had been taken out of this mass of perdition in order that he might call all men to repentance and life. Now we turn then to Paul's worldwide mission after seeing this vision. When Paul took time to meditate on the appearance of the risen Lord to him, the Holy Spirit was preparing him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. The term Gentiles was for Paul the equivalent of all mankind outside the Jews. God so loved the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike, that he sent his only Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The world must hear the words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Through the crucified and risen Christ, and only through him, men may find the way, the truth, and the life. Paul goes out to the Greeks and through them to all men to tell them the good news that they and all their culture may be saved from the destruction and come to true fruition if and only if they will own the crucified Jesus as their Savior and the risen Savior as their Lord. Paul's address at the Areopagus in Athens may serve to give us a general notion as to how he proceeded to tell men this good news about Christ and his resurrection. Paul was not interested in having men believe the fact of the resurrection as an isolated event. Paul was not interested in having the Greeks add one more altar to the already numerous altars that they had raised to other gods. Paul was concerned to have men accept the resurrection as the climax of the work of redemption from sin by Jesus as truly God and truly man. In short, for Paul, men did not existentially accept the fact of the resurrection unless they, in accepting it, accepted it as a part of the entire biblical framework of thinking. He himself, together with the other apostles, was now being employed by the Spirit of Christ to lead men into all the truth with respect to the resurrection in terms of this new framework of thought and therefore with respect to the meaning of the resurrection. Paul gives the men of Athens a glimpse of this framework of thought. To accept Christ in the resurrection, he tells the Athenians, requires them to accept a new and radically different view of the whole course of history from beginning to end. The resurrection, Paul argues, is the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God and Son of Man, who died on the cross for sinners. Says Paul to the Corinthians, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. But what on earth could this man Paul mean? The Corinthians asked themselves, Were they sinners? Did this Christ have to die for their sins? Granted that we're not that we are far from perfect, granted that we are far from living up to that ideal which we have set for ourselves. But have not such men as Socrates at least shown us the way? Has not Plato shown us that truth is within us, as well as above us and beyond us? Does this man Paul insinuate that we are not on the way, and that truth is not in us? Does he mean to suggest that we are walking in the way of death? 
Paul keeps enlarging, however, the scope of his message with respect to this resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is, he said, in effect, God's victory through Christ over the kingdom of Satan. Sin came into the world when Satan tempted Adam and Eve at the beginning of history to declare their independence from God. Satan persuaded Adam and Eve to act as though the world was not created and directed by God and as though they themselves were not made in the image of God. Satan persuaded Adam and Eve to think that they had the way or principle of truth within themselves apart from their creator and that they could walk in that way of life only if they were independent of God. Satan had declared war against God, his creator. Now Adam and Eve made alliance with Satan against their creator. God had placed man in the way of life through love expressed in obedience to his will. God made covenant with man, saying, Do this, and thou shalt live, do that, and you shall die. Adam and Eve chose the way of death by disobeying the expressed command of God. And all men coming from this first pair are guilty with Adam as their representative. All men are covenant breakers in that. All men are haters of God. All men are dead in trespasses and sins against God. And Christ is God. Through him all things were created. By him all things consist. Against him, therefore, all men have sinned. Therefore, the wrath of the triumph God is the wrath of the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. It is the offer of salvation through death of this Christ, this Son of God, that all men have rejected. The resurrection, therefore, points to the future as well as to the past. The resurrection is evidence to all men, says Paul, that this same Jesus who was crucified and who rose from the dead will come again to judge all the living and all the dead, because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance to all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. Dr. Mantel, would you explain to us why you insist that we must presuppose a self-authenticating scripture which testifies to a self-testimony of Christ in order to base our approach to uh, evangelizing the world? The reason for that is that you have no knowledge of any Christ except that the scripture be his self-testimony. In other words, Christ writes me a letter, and that letter is the scripture. And if I do not take that scripture to be the letter to me from Christ, then I have no part in Christ. And then I am intellectually in utter confusion. I am lost intellectually and morally and spiritually. Now, therefore, if we are to have light, and we have been promised light, and we have been given light through Christ in this world, then we need the scriptures as his word, his infallible word, in order to give us the understanding of the meaning of what he is and what he has done for sinners. How similar was Paul's preaching to that of Noah for his generation? In Noah's time, the children of Seth had intermingled with the children of Cain, and all had become one mass of corruption. Men did not think of themselves as image bearers of God. They admitted of the laws of God for their moral and spiritual or for their physical life. But Noah received grace in the sight of God. The whole race of men deserved only death if God determined to save mankind. So he called upon Noah to become a preacher of righteousness. Noah warned men of impending doom for their God-despising thought and life. 
deep down in their hearts, they knew that the story of Adam and Eve in paradise was history, not myth, that they demythologized this tradition that had come down to them from Adam. Great rains had come in the past, they said, but the tale of this man Noah, to the effect that because of our situation ethics, we shall be destroyed by the flood. This we cannot abide. Physics is physics, and ethics is ethics, and never the twain shall meet. But Noah kept on telling the men of his generation that because of their daily individual sins against their Creator God, they would all be destroyed with a flood. They would not listen to any such thing as a revelation from the all-controlling and all-conditioning God of history about a future judgment of death which they all deserve for their covenant-breaking attitude to him, their Creator. Paul's message to the Gentiles was basically similar to that of Noah to the men of his generation. In fact, Paul's message was the same as that of Noah. The message of Paul was the same as that of Noah because it was in both cases the message of Jesus Christ to men. Jesus preached to the men of early times through Noah. He preached to the men of the early Christian era through Paul. And the message of Jesus is always the same. That is, he and he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and that all who will not accept him as their Savior from sin and Lord of life abide under the wrath of the Lamb. The men of Noah's day ridiculed him for his believing in wild visions and for his unwillingness to join them in interpreting the world about them in terms of human experience apart from God's interpretation. The men of Paul's day did the same sort of thing to him. If you had put a microphone to the mouth of some of the bright young college students in the first century after they had listened to Paul's message, you might have heard some strange mutterings. Has not this fellow ever heard of Socrates, or Plato, or Aristotle? Does he think that we shall be obedient to his imaginary Son of God? He says that he was not disobedient to his heavenly vision. Well, we have no intention of being obedient to any vision other than that which human experience duly interpreted by the canons of logic, holds for us. Does he think he can terrify us with his threat of a judgment day? We know that such a thing cannot take place, and anyway, we know that we're in the way of truth, because we could not be men unless we were participating in truth, as Plato has told us clearly. Away with such a fellow from the face of the earth, he is not worthy of life. But do we really mean to say that the reaction Paul received from the Greeks was at bottom similar or even the same as the reaction that Jesus himself received from the leaders of the Jews? Well, we can say nothing less if we are to listen to Paul at all. To preach Christ and the resurrection was, as noted, to preach a philosophy of history that was at every point the diametrical opposite of what apostate man believes. Apostate man worships and serves the creature, creature rather than the creator. Apostate men can become creator worshippers again only if they repent of their apostasy. And to repent of apostasy, apostate men must have their sins forgiven through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for them. And no apostate man will repent of his sin and flee to the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of these sins unless the Holy Spirit regenerates him to newness of life. It is therefore impossible to understand the reaction of apostate man and what he really is and what he is individually and collectively trying to do 
unless the searchlight of the gospel shines upon him. God, Christ, is the light of the world, and through his Spirit alone is the light with which men may see things for what they truly are. But we must see what the apostate man thinks of himself and of his own culture. Let us then turn to a brief study of the Greek culture. In Greek culture, we have an undiluted example of what a apostate man thinks of himself and of his way of life. He surely does not think that he is on the way of death, in Paul's sense of the term. He thinks he is on the way of life. And if that way of life is not what he would like it to be, that is not his fault. If life is short and death takes its daily toll and comes to every man at last, then man must face the situation bravely in the way that Socrates did when he was about to drink the hemlock cup. Behold, and the man Socrates. Let us briefly look at the development of Greek culture. We do so with the help of two outstanding modern interpreters of the Greeks, Werner Jaeger and Richard Kroner. Both of these men are great admirers of Greek culture, and both of them think that Greek culture and Christian culture are aspects of one general human culture. Both Jaeger and Kroner think of the development of Greek culture as a process of internalization of man's self-consciousness. Both of them find this process of internalization to be expressed centrally in Socrates. Socrates found the principle of inwardness which man should follow in himself, in noose, in mind, rather than in water, the indeterminate, in air, or in anything else external to man. Socrates wanted to interpret the lower aspect of life in terms of the higher aspect of life. And man's participation in noose, in mind, was the highest principle, he thought, that was available to man. Socrates had a voice speaking to him, but this voice was not really external to his own consciousness. If the gods told him anything, he would himself of necessity have to be the judge of the truth or the falsity of such a revelation. Werner Jaeger's Paideia, the ideals of the, of the Greek culture, we turn now to Jaeger's story with respect to this development of Greek culture. The intellectual principle of the Greeks, says Jaeger, is humanism. Greek culture is a, quote, process of educating man into his true form, the real and genuine human nature. That is the true Greek culture, the Greek paideia, adopted by the Roman statesman as a model. Above every man, even above man as a member of the horde, stands man's the ideals, says Jaeger. It is the universality, universally valid model of humanity which all individuals are bound to imitate. It is the living ideal which had grown up in a very, the very soil of Greece and changed with the changing fortunes of the race, assimilating every stage of its history and intellectual development, end quote. With this general notion of the Greek culture, Jaeger traces the development of the notion of the ideal man in the history of early Greek literature. This development centers around the idea of virtue, arete. The word arete had originally meant warlike prowess, but at a later stage, later age, found no difficulty in transforming the concept of nobility or virtue to suit its own higher ideals. When Aristotle made his analysis of the history of the moral consciousness of the early Greeks, he began with the high-minded arete of the old aristocratic morality. Thus it was clear, says Jaeger, that the Greek conception of man and his arete developed along an unbroken line 
throughout Greek history. It finally reached its high point in Plato and Aristotle with the idea of Kalo Hagathia, the true man seeking the realization of the ideal man in himself takes possession of the beautiful. A man who truly loves himself will make the utmost sacrifice for this ideal of a beautiful life. Thus the basic motive of Greek adate is contained in the words to take possession of the beautiful. The Homeric poems and the great Athenian philosophers are bound together by the continuing life of the Hellenic idea of virtue or arate. We can only touch upon Jacob's story of this development of the Greek ideal of arate. We begin, he begins with Homer. Homer was the true educator of the Greek notion of arate because he sought to express all the aesthetic and moral potentialities of mankind. Poetry cannot educate unless it embodies a moral belief, a high ardor of spirit, a broad and compelling ideal of humanity. Art has a limitless power of converting the human soul, a power the Greek called psychologia. For art alone possesses the two essentials of educational influence, universal significance, and immediate appeal. The Greek epics express with an incomparable depth and fullness the eternal knowledge of truth and reality, which is the creation of the heroic age, the age that cannot be destroyed by any bourgeois progress. Homer, therefore, became the teacher of all humanity. The world of Homer is throughout inspired by a comprehensive philosophy of human nature and of the eternal laws of the world of process, a philosophy which has seen and judged every essential factor of man's life. For Homer and for the Greeks in general, the ultimate ethical boundaries are not mere rules and obligations, but fundamental laws of being. Homer sees life as governed by universal laws, and for that reason he is the supreme artist and the craft of motivation. We omit entirely what Jaeger has to say about the city-state and about the elegiac, iambic, and hedonist poetry, and turn to what he says about the early Greek philosophers. Early Greek philosophy continues on the path toward internalization of the human spirit, so clearly discernible in Greek poetry and mythology. There is no basic discontinuity between the Ionian nature philosophers and the Homeric epics, says Jacob. To adapt a paraphrase of Kant, mythical thought without formative logic is blind, and logical theorizing without living mythical thought is empty. We may therefore think of Greek philosophy as a process by which the original religious conception of the universe, the conception implicit in myth, was increasingly rationalized. It is impossible here to include even an outline form what Jaeger says about these philosophers in detail. Suffice it to mention that for him Heraclitus was the forerunner of Socrates. For Heraclitus it was the human soul with all its emotions and sufferings that was the center of the energies of the cosmos. Cosmic phenomena happened through him, he held, and for him. His predecessors had brought the Greeks to realize the eternal conflict between being and becoming, now they were driven to ask the awful question, is this universal struggle, in this universal struggle, what place is there for man? Heraclitus sums up his philosophy in one pregnant saying, I sought for myself. The failure of men to follow this logos, says Jaeger, is therefore not merely a failure of theoretical thought. It is deeper than that, 
man must live as a cosmic being. Through its divine origin, the self is able to penetrate the divine heart of nature from which it was born. But cosmic wisdom is not realizable by the average intellect. There are warring forces within the unity of nature. Only if understood as life does the existence of the cosmos lose its apparent contradiction. We are now rapidly approaching Socrates and the principle of inwardness, which he, better than anyone before him, exemplifies. Implicit, if not always fully explicit, in the effort of the poets, the lawgivers, the philosophers, was the search for the moral ideal, for man as an individual and for man as a member of the nation or the race. Implicit also in all the cultural effort was the search for an objective moral as well as an intellectual standard or criterion for the moral life. The thought and life of the individual must somehow fit into the pattern of reality as a whole. The individual man is thought of as a participant in the process of the cosmos. Implicit, too, in the development of Greek culture, as Jacob traces it, is the idea that the individual as participant in reality as a whole has within him the insight and the power of judging and attaining the realization of his intellectual and moral ideas so far as this is objectively possible. Implicit finally in all this that has been said is that there are irrational forces in man and in the universe which make the full realization of this ideal impossible. Even the best of men are confronted with fate and its relentless bludgeoning of good men and bad alike. Ultimate reality is dialectical in nature. It is, as Heraclitus said, a matter of striving and counter-striving. Now we come to the search for a divine center. We turn to Jager's portrait now of Socrates. He deals with it in book three of his work and calls it a search of a divine center. Ultimately, Jager is interested in the transformation of the Hellenistic Greek culture into the Christian culture. But as an introduction to this, Jager says that Socrates forms the connecting link between everything that has been said so far, so far regarding the process of internalization of the Greek spirit and the position of Plato. In 404 BC, after almost 30 years of war between the Greek states, Athens fell. The effects were not merely political, the catastrophe shook all moral laws, it shook the, the roots of religion. If the disaster was to be repaired, the process must start with religion and with ethics. It was in that time of suffering that the Greek spirit first began to turn inward upon itself, and it was to do more and more throughout the succeeding centuries. What then what Jager mentions here with respect to a non-moral doom must not escape our attention. To understand what it means, we go back for a moment to what was mentioned earlier. The search of the Greeks for a moral ideal, a moral standard, and moral motivation was a search for the depth of the spirit of man. At all three of these points, the Greek paideia, or culture, is seen to be diametrically opposed to the Christian paideia or culture. For the Christian believer, the moral idea, the sumum bonum of man was set by his creator, redeemer God, in the beginning of history. The triune God spoke to Adam in paradise and told him what to do with a space-time phenomena surrounding him. He was to engage in a cultural effort as a prophet, a priest, and a king 
seeking to establish the kingdom of God on earth to the glory of God. Similarly, it is the expressed will of this triune God given directly to Adam at the first and then through Christ the Redeemer when man has fallen into sin that was to be the standard of thought and behavior for man. Finally, it was only a God himself would work within and through the consciousness of man that a man could take the first step toward the realization of this summum bonum that had been placed before him at the beginning of history. Man was to grow internally, both intellectually and morally, as a creative covenant keeper of the triune God that faced him in every fact of the universe within and about him. When man became a sinner, there was the necessity of the mediation of the covenant promises and threats through the manifestation of the God-man in history. It was because Christ died in the place of man and because the Holy Spirit applied the cleansing power of the blood of the Son of God to the hearts of men that any of them could again become genuinely lovers of God. To become a lover of God, the Savior is the way, the only way, the true inwardness of man's response to his creator, the Redeemer. In other words, there is an irreconcilable difference between the Greek and the Christian paideia as to the question of man and his behavior intellectually and morally in his striving for the realization of the ideal man. In the Christian paideia, the creator-redeemer sets man's goal, his aim in life. From the point of the Greek paideia, this would be an insult to his own self-sufficient personality. It would be destructive of his principle of inwardness by which he sets his own goal for himself. Secondly, in the Christian paideia, God reveals his will to man by speaking either directly to his consciousness before the fall of Adam or indirectly through Christ and his word as come into history after the fall of Adam. From the point of view of the Greek paideia, this would again be be against the principle of inwardness by which he can find his way for himself. In the third place, according to the Christian paideia, God the Holy Spirit opens man's eyes, regenerating him so that he may see Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. From the point of view of the Greek paideia, this would once more be an insult to his self-sufficient personality. As though he were not already, by virtue of his manhood, operating and into the, walking in the direction he should go. Uniting these three points with respect to the goal, the standard, and the motive power of man's behavior, the Greek and the Christian paideia can never make any alliance with one another. There can at bottom be nothing but conflict between them. This is not to say that there is no connection between them, and that they have no manner of common ground. There is every connection between them. The Greek or the non-Christian paideia had no other place to operate against the Christ than on the places of what Christ has done. And it had no other ground on which to stand in order to oppose him than to be upheld by this Son of God and Son of Man. Only to indicate briefly what Paul meant when he asked the Corinthians, Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For after that the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. You rebel against what I have proclaimed to you about Jesus and the resurrection. Will you not for once look into 
the ground on which you stand when you say that Jesus' claim about himself cannot be true, you refuse to accept what I have told you in Jesus' name, that you are creatures made in his image, the image of God. The only thing that you can offer as an alternative to this is the idea that man has sprung from the womb of chance and that therefore his logical powers have also sprung from the womb of chance. Is this a reasonable view of the origin of man to you? Can you stand on this ground when you make your universal negative against the claims of Christ? And how can you account for the growth of human culture on the view that man not only but all reality, space-time reality, has a pure chance, pure contingency back of it. You say that the idea of pure contingency is only one aspect of your view. The other aspect, you say, is that of man's participation in pure rationality or being. Is then your human self, your Socratic inwardness, your principle by which you live, composed, of a principle of pure rationality correlative to a principle of pure contingency or irrationality, that this idea of the correlativity of an abstract principle of rationality and an equally abstract principle of diversity furnish you with a foundation on which to stand when you reject the claims of Christ, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the light of the world, and I am the life of men, you virtually say what the Pharisees said, that Jesus was a mere man, and that he blasphemed when he made himself out to be the Son of God. But you have not shown that you have anything but a vacuum on which to stand when you make this claim. You have reduced your own position to pure unintelligibility. You know in your heart that this is true. Again, I plead with you to repent and to be saved. Greek philosophy, but it, it seems to me that our times are uh, very different from the Greeks. Now, uh, what is the relation between what you've been saying and uh, the kind of people we meet today? How do we deal with them? My chief teachers at the University of Princeton told me that you will never understand modern philosophy nor modern thinking as a whole unless you first understand Greek thinking. The reason that he gave for this was to the effect that the Greeks set the tone and they gave us the starting point and the methodology as well as the conclusions of all modern thinking. To be sure, Greek philosophy is called more objectivistic than is modern thinking and modern thinking is said to be more subjectivistic. But from the Christian point of view, the Greeks started with what we have to think of as a purely man-centered and therefore subjectivistic point of view. When Socrates said that he wanted to know what is holy, regardless of what gods or men say about it, if we understand the significance of this, then and then only will we understand that Descartes, Renaissance man in general, and notably Immanuel Kant, the father of recent modern the philosophy and theology, said the same thing and expanded on it, and that we therefore cannot understand what is meant by the inwardness, the true spirituality of man himself, unless we understand, first of all, the history of Greek thinking. There is a famous German book, Neue Wege der, Phil der Philosophie, New Paths of Philosophy, which says that Greek thinking was world-centered, 
Medieval thinking was God-centered, and modern thinking is man-centered. Well, you certainly cannot understand the one unless you stand them, understand all three of them in relationship to one another. Particularly from the Christian point of view, it is of importance to see that the God of the Greeks is a projection on the part of man who thinks of himself as sufficient to himself, and that that is true of modern thinking, of modern philosophy. The projection motif of modern philosophy goes back to and is founded on on the Socratic principle of Inverness and on the Platonic idea of culture based on that principle. You will not understand modern man and you will not understand his view of God in relation to him. And you, in particular, will not understand the Christian church and its conception of Jesus Christ unless you understand the Greek attitude in relation to Paul's presentation of him. As you know, Paul came to the Greeks, notably to the Athenians, with the idea that they didn't believe in creation, they didn't believe in the possibility of the death and resurrection of Christ, and they didn't believe in his view of the judgment. He was trying to bring them a totally different view of the whole of philosophy from beginning to ending. And you will understand the relation of Christian thinking to modern general thinking, non-Christian thinking, only if you first understand also the relation of Greek thinking in relation to Christian thinking, as Paul the Apostle presented. Dr. Van Til, why did the Apostle Paul quote two Greek poets on the Areopagus in, chapter, in Acts 17? I do not know why he did that, no doubt in the interest of a point of contact with them. But the frequently taken position is that he meant by doing that that he was on common ground with them in the sense that he agreed with them. Man, the Greek poets have said, is an offspring of God. But Paul did not mean by that that he agreed with the Greek poets and that because what the Greeks meant, meant is that man is participant in the being of God, that he is essentially divine so far as his intellect is concerned. Now that's what the Greek poets meant and that's what the Greek philosophers meant and that's what all apostate men mean. Now Paul means to have them reject this position and that's why he says since man is a creature he must not worship the creature as though it were God so he is simply using this as a come on as a means by which to get a conversation started not as though he were in agreement there is no point of contact between the two on which the two positions agree the only possible point of contact in this is the fact that the Christian position is true and the non-Christian position is false all men in this world must operate on the only universe there is, the created universe, and with the idea of man as fallen and with the man as redeemed in the blood of Christ. The position of medieval man is classically expressed in what Dr. Herman Doyleret speaks of as the nature-grace framework of thought. In this nature-grace framework of thought, the form-matter scheme of the Greeks is accepted as the principle with which nature, that is, the world of created things, is to be interpreted. The revelation of God's grace is then to be added as the principle of interpretation for the supernatural. As far as the interpretation of nature is concerned, the Christian theologian philosopher may then, on this basis, be properly used, may properly use the method of Aristotle, the great Greek exponent of the Greek form matter scheme of thought. The Christian philosopher theologian will find that using Aristotle's method, he will obtain a natural teleology, not theology, 
which will lead him to a supernatural teleology of Christ. Grace will supplement nature. Revelation will supplement reason. It is as though a second story were added to the first story of the house. The Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love will supplement the cardinal virtues of the Greeks. It is Thomas Aquinas who best represents this synthesis point of view. Thomas constructs his philosophy and his natural theology by means of Aristotle's methodology. Having done this, he goes on to construct his supernatural theology by means of the study of the revelation of God in Christ, presented in Scripture. The official creedal statements of the Council of Trent of the Roman Catholic Church are, to a considerable extent, what they are because of this influence of Thomas Aquinas. According to the thinking of Thomas, Jesus Christ may first be approached by the method of Aristotle. Is he not a real man? Yes, indeed he is. But Jesus is also more than a man. He is also God. By his method, Aristotle proved the existence of God, did he not? So, by natural reason, we obtain the idea of man as related to God, indeed as related to God, because participant in God. God is the eternal principle of community and continuity by participation in which man knows himself to be rational. In terms of this principle, too, man knows how to use the principle of contradiction in order to determine what is possible and what is impossible in nature. Even so, Aristotle's one God is the God of essence only, says Chilson. The idea of this God is of pure essence, of pure thought thinking itself, must be supplemented with the idea of God as being. And this idea of God as being could spring from, from no other source than from revelation. It is thus that a Jean Gilson, an expert on the Middle Ages, and himself a Roman Catholic philosopher and theologian, presents the matter. Let us now look at this whole scheme of synthesis between Aristotle and Christ as it was given to us in the Middle Ages. We shall do so first by contrasting the position of Plotinus, the greatest, latest Greek philosopher, and St. Augustine, the first great Christian philosopher-theologian. After that, we shall see how the Augustinian and the Plotinian positions struggle with one another and against one another in the early Middle Ages. In the third place, we shall see the argument as developed by Gilson for this medieval synthesis. And then we shall ourselves evaluate the entire position. We must now briefly first trace the development of medieval man's idea of himself and of his culture from the time of Augustine to that of Thomas Aquinas. Augustine stands for the Pauline Principle. He tells us that the whole of history consists of one deadly combat between the city of God and the city of man. The citizens of the former kingdom are in disagreement with the citizens of the latter kingdom on the questions of beginning, the question of the center, and the question of the end or consummation of history. Each of them has an exactly opposite philosophy of history. To be sure, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven must not say to the citizens of the kingdom of man what Jesus said to the Pharisees. Only Jesus knew the heart of man. His followers may speak of two opposing principles which activate men. It is not possible for them to say in each instance whether man belongs to the one kingdom or to the other. History is never and nowhere a finished product. 
but there are two main and exclusive tendencies in it. Men are in their hearts for or against the Christ that Paul preached, and what is in their hearts usually finds expression in the sympathies that they manifest in their action. But what we have just said about Augustine comes from a later his later writings. As Paul had been converted from the Pharisee position to Christ, so Augustine was converted from being an adherent of the Greek spirit and of being a follower of a teleology, such as we've spoken of, of Aristotle, to the theology and teleology of Paul. By reading the New Testament, Augustine had learned that Christ spoke the simple truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Look now first with me at the position of Plotinus as he expresses it in the notion of the scale of being. We may look back to the philosophy of Plotinus as though it were a prison from which Augustine had been rescued. That's how he regarded it. Apostate man had locked himself in this prison. He had forged such entanglements of ropes about himself that he could not possibly set himself free. It was the imprisonment of men who had taken out their own eyes. We have already seen that the Socratic principle of inwardness is the picture of man as he tries to seek for the right answer to the questions of life, but who says in advance that he will not accept the answer of the Creator-Redeemer, God. For Socrates' truth must be discoverable within man, or there simply is no truth. We have also seen that Plato worked out a whole philosophy of culture in terms of this Socratic principle of inwardness, and that as a consequence he too ruled out in advance the only possible answer there is for man. When we turn to Plotinus, we find that his starting point, his method and his conclusion, are basically similar to the starting point, the method and the conclusion of the Greeks in general. He gathered together into one comprehensive view, what he thought to be the best thinking of the Greeks and of the Hellenistic philosophers. His system of thought is often referred to to the idea of the scale of being. His disciple, Porphyry, arranged the writings of Plotinus in six books, each of which contain nine chapters, hence the name Aeneas. We take a very brief exposition of the content of this Aeneas from Frederick Copleston, A History of Philosophy, Copleston himself being a Roman Catholic philosopher. Who and what, asked Coppleton, is God, or Plotinus, quote, God is absolutely transcendent. He is the one, beyond all thought and all being, ineffable and incomprehensible. Still further, since God is one without any multiplicity or division, there can be in the one no duality of substance and accident, and Plotinus is accordingly unwilling to ascribe to God any positive attributes. We will not say that the one is thus or the not thus, he says, for if we say this, we thereby delimit it and make it a particular thing, whereas in reality it is beyond all things, and which can be delimited by any such predication. From this one, we descend to what he calls the mind, the, the mind, and from the mind comes the world's soul, similar to the world soul that is found in Plato's dialogue with Chinese. And then after the world soul, we discover man and nature, the world as we know it, where we live. Now it would appear to be obvious that Plotinus and Augustine represent mutually exclusive views of man and of his culture as a whole. Plotinus has drawn together all the threads of the thinking of apostate man 
And Augustine has brought together all the threads of the thinking of redeemed man. Plotinus represents the city of man. Augustine represents the city of God. Can anyone after them think of seeking to make peace between them? Would-be autonomous man assumes himself to be the starting point, the standard, and the final reference point of all his speaking, his predication about anything. Opposed to this, redeemed man knows before Jesus Christ knows that Jesus Christ is the starting point, the standard, and the reference point of all his predication about anything. The decisive battle between these two, the city of God and the city of man, between covenant keepers and covenant breakers, was fought when Jesus Christ redeemed sinful men on the cross. Through his death and resurrection, he changed his people so that from being his enemies, they became his friends. This is what happened to Saul of Tarsus, persecutor of Jesus when he became Paul the Apostle. Something just as basic happens to all other believers, and it happened to Augustine. Augustine's basic commitment, as best expressed in his later writings, therefore stands over against Plotinian's notion of the scale of being. This is not how Cobbleston thinks of the matter, of course. This is not how Gilson, the famous Roman Catholic writer of medieval philosophy, thinks of the matter. Nor is it the position of Richard Croner, the post-Kantian Protestant theologian philosopher. These men, and for many others, the Plotinian and the Augustinian points of view supplement one another. They can be complement, complementary to one another. The reason why these men think a synthesis between Plotinus and Augustine is possible and must be effective is that they are themselves basically committed to a view of man essentially the same as that of Plotinus and opposite to that of Augustine. They, as well as Plotinus, assume that man's rational freedom consists of his participation in an abstract, contentless principle of unity, correlative to an abstract, contentless principle of diversity, of chance. On such an assumption, with respect to man and his environment, the Christian view must, in advance, be rejected as not even a legitimate hypothesis for the explanation of reality. It is no wonder, then, that these men do not interpret medieval thought as consisting of a strife between the city of God and the city of man, but as a noble effort to synthesize the best in both views. Now let us turn, secondly, to what happened after the time of Plotinus and Augustine, between Augustine and Thomas Aquinas. In the first place, there have the development of negative theology by Pseudo-Dionysius. Pseudo-Dionysius brings the Plotinian motif in direct confrontation with the Augustinian principle. As a Christian believer, Dionysius says that we must not say anything about the Godhead, quote, except those things that are revealed to us from the Holy Scripture, end quote. But having said this much, Dionysius proceeds at once to press the whole story of Scripture from creation to its consummation into a Plotinian type of the scale of being. Above all the other realities, says Dionysius, is, quote, the superessential Godhead of which we must not dare to speak or even to have any conception. This is precisely the same notion that we've just heard with Plotinus developing about the utterly ineffable God of which absolutely nothing definite can be said. It is the same position that was held essentially by Plato already when he appointed to the idea 
that above everything definite that is said about God, there is that indefinite of which nothing must or can be said. It is the unknown God of the Greeks to, of which all the apostles spoke when he came to them at Athens. For the superessential good, quote, while dwelling by itself alone and having there firmly fixed its superessential ray, it lovingly reveals itself by illuminations corresponding to each separate creature's power and thus draws upward holy minds into such contemplation, participation, and resemblance of itself as they can attain, even then that holily and duty, duly strive thereafter, end quote. Through the beams that fall upon us in Scripture, we, from the superessential source of being, we learn that it is both the cause and the origin of being and of life of all creation. We even know that it is the power of renewal and reform, as if to anticipate Paul Tillich's notion of the new being, he says, Dionysius tells us that the superessential is, quote, the grounding of them that feel the shock of unholy assault, end quote. As does Tillich, so Dionysius makes the, his theology Christocentric as well as biblical. But even the plainest article of divinity, says Dionysius, Quote, namely, the incarnation and the birth of Jesus in human form cannot be expressed by any language or known by any language or any mind, not even by the first of the most exalted angels. If then there is any help in the person and work of Christ for the salvation of men, it is because of his identity with the superessential on the one hand and with man in this world on the other. It is thus that negative theology requires the idea of symbolic theology. All revelation in human language, even of it as it is given to us in Scripture, claims to be used by Christ himself in the interest of telling men final truth. It is said to be impossible, says Sontag, quote, final statements are ruled out by the ultimate inappropriateness of a language that is necessarily based upon distinctions, end quote. Even if one speaks of the superessential being as perfect, one has not done more than point to it. All human languages, in the nature of the case, symbolic, and symbolically points to something that is above all understanding of any man. Modern philosophy and theology has tried to outdo Dionysius in both his negative and in his symbolic approach to the idea of the holy otherness of God. Following Kant, modern philosophers and theologians know with all possible certainty that God is unknowable even though they cannot show how man or the world can be known without God, they're certain that man has knowledge and that he has this knowledge without God. Even though they admit that man is a product of chance, of pure contingency, that the logical powers of his thought are products of chance, yet they know also that God cannot possibly be man's creator or redeemer. On the other hand, modern philosophers and especially theologians assert that man's constitution and facts and the facts of the universe about him somehow point to God. They're even sure that God is good and somehow the source of goodness in and to man. In other words, the principle of plenitude controls modern philosophy and theology as it did St. Denis. The only difference between the modern thinkers and St. Denis is that the moderns outdo him both in the irrationality of their affirmations and in the rationalism of their negations. We need not now pursue this point. We turn now next to the question of natural theology, as it is involved in 
negative theology and in symbolic theology. It has already become apparent from what has been said that the ineffable God of Plotinus, of, of Dionysius, and of Origina, who has no knowable character at all, yet somehow, in purely non-rational fashion, manifests himself and expresses himself in this world. It is an internal necessity for God thus to reveal himself. His being overflows himself. Yet the world in which he manifests himself is not what it is exclusively by virtue of its coming from God. There is a principle of non-being, as there was in all of Greek philosophy, over against this thought that contributes in an original manner to the nature of the world. To be sure, Originus says that the world simply is what it is by virtue of the knowledge of God. And origin expresses herewith the determinism that adheres in the principle of plenitude, which controls his thinking. But in the time of Plotinus and his followers, men were anxious to show the Christian world that it was they, and not the Christians, who really had an intelligible philosophy of history. Philosophy, they argued, does indeed point to the ideal world, but it points to this ideal world as the principle of explanation of this world. Unfortunately, Plotinus and his followers had to appeal to the idea of pure contingency, for help in their, their explanation of the world of chance and of chains. Without this principle of contingency, the facts of space-time world on their basis would be unreal. But with the principle of contingency, as correlative to that of determinism, this world was made utterly unintelligible. The natural theology that of necessity goes with this negative and with this Symbolical theology is well expressed by Plotinus himself even and his followers when they all say that the facts of this world must somehow participate in the unity of the other world. And then finally we come to what is called usually called mystical theology. Underneath the negative and the natural and the symbolical theology spoken of thus far lies that of mystical theology which was so prominent in medieval times. In general, we may say that as negative theology deals with the idea of the unknowable God, as natural theology deals with the unknowable world, so mystical theology deals with the unknowable man. Augustine learned more particularly to reject the mystical theology of salvation inherent in the principle of plenitude, the scale of being idea, in the interest of the salvation through Christ who died in history on the cross. This mystical principle implies that man has in himself the knowledge of the way of salvation and the power to walk in it. Mystical principle was already expressed by Socrates in his principle of inwardness. To be sure, Socrates sought to answer the skeptics of his day by thinking of the individual soul as participant in an objective world of intelligence. But by the time of Plotinus, this objective world of intelligence had shown itself to be something that is utterly beyond the reach of all human intelligence. And if with Plato it is Diotima the inspired that must lift up the soul to the world of light, so it is by sheer concentration of its own powers that the soul of Plotinus takes off in its ecstatic flight into the world of light, which is actually darkness as well as light. In other words, it is the mysticism of Plotinus rather than the supposed inwardness of Augustine that is the stepping stone from a Socratic vision to that of the vase and show of such men as Husserl and of his existentialist followers. In one 
Since Plotinus was not modern, he was still desirous of joining his soul with a somehow objectively existing principle of unity, while modern man knows that this is to follow the mirage. Even so, there is no essential difference between the ecstatic vision of Plotinus and of the, and the base and show of post-Kantian philosophy. Plotinus, as well as those who follow Kant's primacy of the practical reason, want to transcend the realm of knowledge and of science by means of one grand determination, as the Germans call it, one grand entschluss of the will that is absolutely free because itself is in the principle of living in the world of the numeral, knowing that the numeral realm is wholly unknowable and that man himself is therefore wholly unknowable to himself. Modern theologians postulate the existence of a God of grace as also existing in that realm. Thus it is that the primacy of the practical reason of Kant as over against the theoretical reason leads to the postulation of a wholly unknown God and of his manifestation through Christ in the world. And if modern theology prides itself on having with Soren Kierkegaard seen that the truth is subjective, therefore, and that man is existentially engaged only when he finds this truth in God as the subject rather than as the object of thought, then the essentials of this thinking can be found in the Aeneids of Plotinus. Plotinus does not want the soul to be cold and detached when in itself, quite apart from any revelation through Christ and history, it discovers the intuition of the divine light. The soul must feel a rapture such as that of a lover who sees the beloved object, who rests within it, a rapture felt by him who has seen the true light, whose soul has been overwhelmed with the brilliance of approaching light. It was this principle of inwardness, or plenitude, as represented so well by Plotinus, that was brought into synthesis with the principle of Christianity by Dionysius and by Scotus Origina. And surely it seemed as though the Plotinian myth was to swallow up the testimony of the self-attesting Christ. In neither Dionysius nor in Origina does there seem to be much left of historic Christianity, to be sure, there is a verbal commitment to the self-attesting Christ, but then there follows immediately a reduction of his word and work in terms of the principle of plenitude. Dr. Van Til, you've said uh, a lot in criticism of natural theology, but don't uh, men, even before they're Christians, know something about God? Isn't that what Paul says in Romans 1? What Paul says in Romans 1 is not natural theology, but it's the revelation of God in nature to man and the revelation of God in the consciousness of man to himself. What Paul literally says is, knowing God, that is, nontis don theon, they have not kept him in remembrance, they have repressed, they have held under in unrighteousness that which they know to be true about themselves. Yes, indeed, the natural man, every man, there isn't a single man living and there isn't a single man that has lived that did not know deep down in his consciousness, we might say today subconsciousness, that he is what the Bible says he is, a creature of God and responsible to God. Romans 1 says that, verse 14 and 15, when it speaks of the conscience of men accusing or excusing him. That goes back to a natural, unavoidable, incontrovertible knowledge that every man has of God. But that's not the knowledge to which we can attach ourselves, because that is now no longer the knowledge that man thinks he has of God when he works up his natural theology. The natural theology of the Greeks 
is the theology of a God who is not the creator, who is not the triune God of Scripture, 